Hi, Mary. How's it going? Not bad, Dan. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks. You know what? It's been really nice. Got a couple of really nice messages recently from listeners who've said that they're enjoying the show, which is always lovely to hear. And lots of people saying it's also been nice to listen to during lockdown, obviously, which is, again, nice to hear because it's a tough time out there for everyone. Everyone, I'm trying to get through this one this time. So it's nice to hear that people are finding it good to listen to the show. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I equally sort of, I guess, reach out to thank those who've got in touch because it's always a really nice message to receive, isn't it? And let's just hope our uh, listener figures stay high post lockdown. Hopefully we've got them all hooked now. Yeah. And do please, listeners, re- reach out to us if there's particular things you want to hear about. I've had a couple of really good suggestions that have come in actually from listeners, which we're going to take forward for future episodes. So do let us know what you're interested to hear about. Absolutely. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So, well, yes, there's really one big key news story of the moment of today, really, of course, and that's vaccines. And here to discuss that, we thought we'd get our favourite epidemiologist back on the show to help us discuss it. So welcome, Johnny. Thanks, Dan and Mary. Good to be back with you. So, Johnny, I think last time we spoke to you, we were feeling quite optimistic about how COVID might play out, but you sort of brought us back down to earth a bit by talking about how difficult the winter and post-Christmas period could be. And obviously, that's what we've seen, but it's mingled in with some positive news coming out about the vaccine rollout. And as Dan said, that's kind of something we'd like to get into a lot of detail with you today. And I suppose just reflecting on how that impacts investment markets... I think probably from my perspective, it feels like markets have sort of priced in a relatively positive story in relation to vaccines. We had markets surging when there was early news, earlier than expected news on vaccine approval and vaccine rollout. And we've not seen a dip since. So is it up from here or do you have more words of caution for us? That's right, Mary. And when we spoke as well, I think it was just before the vaccine news came out. And I'm quite glad that I was wrong when I said as most in the scientific community thought, efficacy of 50 to 70% would be really good. And so the numbers that have come out of these vaccine trials, especially the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, are truly astonishing and really a fantastic feat of science. I think it's a really tricky part that we're in at the moment, isn't it, for everybody? Because in some ways, for the first time, we can truly see the end of this awful last year and the pandemic. But that similarly, actually, the numbers in terms of the loss of life, the hospitalizations and so forth, and then the policy that we're under at the moment is the darkest day of all. And so it's quite a paradox to be in that position. And that has different implications for everybody. But one thing that certainly here in the UK, I think is really positive is the vaccine rollout's only been going about six weeks, and we have more than 6 million people already vaccinated, which is truly astonishing. I think when that target of mid-February for the 15 million or so in the top four risk groups was set. I think given the history of targets over the last nine months, there were very few who thought we'd get anywhere near that. And I think it's testament to that it's, you know, it's the NHS who are driving that and doing such a fantastic job. So there's definitely positivity and reason to be optimistic, but we've still got quite a few hard yards ahead of us yet, I think. Yeah. And I think we can certainly give you credit for a correct prediction there, because it's very hard to remember back in November, before the second lockdown, things were looking reasonably positive. And, and back then it was quite difficult to imagine we'd be faced with such a tough situation that we are faced with now. But back then you were drawing attention to this paradox, if you like, that you could easily have exploding case numbers 
very high death numbers and real pressure on the NHS at the same time as the vaccine was being rolled out. So back then, that seemed quite a bizarre scenario in some ways. But of course, it's exactly where we are. Unfortunately, that's right. And it's the combination of this second wave and whether we're into a third wave or not, or whether it's second is, is in many ways semantics. But the, it's inevitable, sadly, when you go into the winter period, this is the best time for the virus because we're all inside. These are the conditions that it likes. And also, it's the worst time for the NHS generally. So the NHS is capacity anyway in the winter. You know, every year we have A&E issues and flu issues. And so it was inevitable these pressures were going to stack up. And what's really, really disappointing looking back is that we had that November sort of lockdown, which wasn't as severe as this lockdown, nor the one in March. But it did reduce the case numbers generally across the country. But within two weeks of that ending, we were seeing the almost the worst growth of the virus that we've seen at all. And clearly that was in part due to the new strain, the so-called Kent strain, but also just because the tier restrictions we went back into just simply weren't effective at the time that we needed them the most, which led to this huge growth up to some of our estimates around 100,000 new cases a day around that Christmas period. And that's what's resulted to where we are now. I suppose it really puts the spotlight on a lockdown and making sure that lockdowns actually work. I think probably many people I've spoken to are finding this third lockdown the hardest. And part of that is because of the restrictions that are in place. Part of it is because it's the third time round. Part of it is because it's winter, but also because there's no sort of specific end date. And I think that's probably the question on many people's minds personally. But of course, it does affect markets too, because companies can't start sort of reinvigorating their businesses again until we start unwinding that lockdown. Yeah. And just before Johnny answers that, I'm going to remind him of an answer he gave to me before when we've spoken, which was that, as you might know, my birthday's on the 22nd of March. And I was asking you <laughs> what chance I have of having a party for sort of, I don't know, 20 or 30 friends or something like that on the 22nd of March. And I think last time you sort of said it was a bit of a toss up, but I think now we can agree that that's out of the question, unfortunately, until quite a lot later in the year. Right? So it's a good thing I didn't book anything. <laughs> I agree, sadly, that it is done at this stage. I think one of the things that we can be sure is that the lockdown itself is working in terms of reducing the number of cases. But what's interesting is it's perhaps reducing the number of cases at a slower rate than we might have expected or hoped, certainly compared to back last March. And I think there's three really important reasons for that. One is, whilst this is the most severe lockdown period we've had since the one last March, it's still not quite as severe as it was then. But the second one is that a lot of the virus currently circulating is this so-called Kent strain, which the estimates vary, but it's thought to be more infectious than the first strain. So if you think what you were doing before, you've now got a more infectious strain, you almost, if you do the same, you're going to have less good results. And then the third area is sort of lockdown fatigue. And there's sort of growing evidence, both anecdotal and polling data, to suggest that just as with actually isolating, when people are asked to isolate, that actually the adherence is not as good as it was in that first lockdown. And then you have those who've had vaccines definitely tend to actually adhere even less than those who haven't had the vaccine yet. So all of that makes it even more tricky, I think, for the lockdown to be as effective as it was the first time around. And I know the question on news reporters' lips when they're interviewing various people in government is what factors will need to be in place for lockdown to start being eased. But I guess from your perspective, from the scientific and epidemiologist's perspective, what sort of things do you think we need to see before that starts easing? So I think there's several different metrics, some of which will come sooner. So clearly, we want to see case numbers down to a manageable level. And what's a manageable level? Well, really, it's a number that the test and trace system would be able to control and effectively control. And that's a lot lower than we are now. And really, it's a lot lower than we've been since last summer or so. But I think one of the driving metrics throughout all of this is the hospitalizations number, the number of people in hospital 
and how hospitals can operate. Because when hospitals are so full and ITU beds and so forth are so full with patients with COVID, it's not only the next person who comes in with COVID that their care is put at risk, but it's the person who comes in from a car accident, from a heart attack and so forth. And all of a sudden, the quality of care that the service can provide is much lower. You have many more excess deaths. And that's what everyone's very worried about. So I think that hospitalization number will really drive actually a lot of the policy. And then if you work backwards from that, clearly it's reducing the risk of people being hospitalized, needing ITU and so forth. And so if we look broadly at the moment, the median age of those hospitalized with COVID is sort of in your early 60s. So to reduce that number, clearly lockdown is helping reducing the number infected. But that's when you talk about the vaccinations covering that middle age group as well. That will have a big impact on that. I think what's really interesting throughout the pandemic is understandably everyone wants a date as to when things will change because you know in our lives this is it's a really quite an awful period but also to be able to plan and something to cling on to and over the last 10 months certainly this government have been very glad to provide dates and each time almost on every occasion they have provided false hope from saying Christmas would go ahead as normal and so forth and what I'm really quite actually pleased with is that there has been a change in tone in the last couple of weeks to be on the conservative side when talking about any of these types of dates and almost to refuse to give specific dates so that it doesn't raise hopes and doesn't erode that goodwill across the public. Yeah, I think the expression that was being used was it on the cusp of turning the corner to a light at the end of the tunnel or something like that. The vagueness of it is quite amazing, but perhaps right, as you're sort of saying. What was interesting, I was just thinking there when you were saying it, you were saying the most important data point is the number of hospitalizations. But annoyingly, that's the one figure that doesn't really get quoted much. We'll talk a lot about cases and deaths. That seems a bit more elusive, those comparisons. I mean, they are made sometimes, numbers thrown out here and there, but we just don't have as much context for them really, do we? It's a bit of a shame, I guess, if that's what's driving policy. Yes. Yeah, so it's on the government dashboard, COVID dashboard data. They have four main numbers at the moment now, with the fifth one being vaccination. So one is the number of new daily cases from the PHE testing. One is the number of deaths from those who've tested positive for COVID in the last 28 days. The other is the number of tests that they've done. And the final one is that hospitalization. So new people coming into hospital on a given day. And what was pleasing to see is that at the back end of last week, that seven day average for the first time was flat and then started to decline. So sure enough, we saw about two and a half weeks ago, that seven day average for cases start to plateau and then decline. We're now seeing that with hospitalization, still a long, long way to go with nearly 30,000 people in hospital with COVID at the moment, a long way to go to get that down to much more manageable levels. But that means we would hope that the number of deaths would plateau around about back end of this week or early next week, hopefully, and then start to decline as well. And I guess thinking about the vaccine rollout, which clearly, as you've just said, is very key to us getting back to whatever normal is in the future. Do you have stats in terms of things like the critical mass of the proportion of the population that need to have received the vaccine? And presumably, given what you just said about the average age of people in hospital, actually, you need that proportion to apply in different age groups because different age groups are different levels of risk in relation to COVID. Exactly, Mary. And so when this all started, people talk about reaching herd immunity. The usual way of doing that is via people being vaccinated, so acquiring immunity that way. And that depends on the R rate. And initially, with the R rate estimates of sort of high twos, around three, it was estimated that around 75-80% of people or so would need to be immune to have that sort of herd immunity at the population level. Now, if some of these newer strains are have higher R rates and are more infective, then clearly that would be higher still. As you say, it's very different if we have 80% of the population age 60 and older who've been vaccinated compared to those who are younger. And without dismissing the substantial and significant impacts that COVID does have on young 
adults and middle-aged adults all of the time, but at the population level, they're in much, much greater in proportion at those older levels. So I think it's looking forward to it. It's, what we can see is that the government so far have targeted those top four risk groups by mid-February with a plan for the rest of the top nine risk groups over the next couple of months after that. And that first dose, of course, gives you some protection. We're not exactly sure exactly how much. But then that second dose, which at the moment is about 12 weeks later, is the one that we have the trial data suggests that's around the 95% effectiveness in Pfizer and not too dissimilar in AstraZeneca. So I think building backwards from that, once you've got really your middle age groups of age 50 and above, having gone through the vaccinations, both first and second doses, you would then start to really see a really substantial decline in really the ratio of people getting infected in the community to then that turning into hospitalizations and then deaths and so forth and start to turn the corner on this really quite substantially. Yeah, because there was a quite a good piece of work, I think, by a group of actuaries who've done a lot of work on COVID that was got quite widely quoted sort of a couple of weeks ago that was started to make this point that there are some curves that work in your favor quite neatly when you start talking about vaccinations. I think that the key stat was 88% less deaths once the priority four age groups are vaccinated. And of course, it doesn't take much thinking to sort of broadly convince yourself that that's true. Most deaths are happening in older people. But then, of course, the immediate next question is, well, hang on, is it deaths that really matter here? And I guess what you're saying is, well, of course, deaths matter. Deaths are awful. But what's driving policy is hospitalizations. And that you've got to go a bit further into the lower age groups. And so it's quite an interesting little balance of some of the stats of the vaccine rollout versus the prevalence of the disease in different age groups and stuff. Absolutely. And of course, those top four groups and the over 75s, for example, who tend to have slightly shorter hospital stays than those in the middle age groups because of the poorer outcomes. But clearly, if they're not getting very unwell because they've had the vaccine and not going to hospital, that also does then help the hospitalizations number. It helps the capacity that the NHS has to cope with those who do. So it all very much does contribute. But that sort of high 80% number that you mentioned in terms of the reduction in deaths that we would hope to see from the vaccination of these four highest risk groups, it's not quite as high as that, the impact then we'd see on hospitalizations, if that makes sense. It sort of filters through in that middle age group have a much larger proportionate contribution to hospitalizations than to the death toll overall. This debate about the one dose versus two doses of the vaccine thing, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Is that just a bit of a sideshow or is that a really serious thing we ought to be worrying? To my mind, it seems odd that there's not more clear science on that. It's like, well, surely we should know the answer to that question, but it seems like we don't. This is a one of the many illustrative examples of how unenviable these decisions are throughout the pandemic and how normally we have so much time, so much data, so much ability to do more trials before we make these really tough decisions. Now, the approach which has been taken by the UK government on the advice of the Joint Committee for Vaccinations and Immunisations is to say, so we can either give, obviously, we can give people their two doses about four weeks apart or extend that to 12 weeks. And by doing the latter, you can then give many more people in a 12-week period one dose. So you've got many more people with a given level of immunity rather than fewer people with much more immunity. Now, at the population level, that clearly should have a much bigger impact in terms of increasing immunity, reducing serious infections and reducing deaths. And so it's that idea of trying to increase that immunity across the population and to many more people quicker. The reason there isn't much science on that at the moment is because it's brand new. And obviously in the trials, it was done at that three to four week interval, and which is why the UK are being very clear to monitor how this is going and to see if they need to change tack along the road. But I think at that population level, it's clear that that is the right approach at the moment. And I think Jonathan Van Tam summed it up very well in the press conference yesterday, say, 
for those who are pushing to go back to the four-week approach, which of those people in high-risk groups five to 10 would you say you can't have your first dose and get quite substantial immunity because we need to give the second dose to the other people in groups one to four first? And that's a very difficult question to answer, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose when we've been talking about this, the vaccine rollout and vaccine take-up, we've been, I think, working on the assumption that everyone who's offered a vaccine takes it. But of course, that's not necessarily the case. I guess, what risk do you view there being from the fact that not everyone will take up the vaccine? Are we at the levels where actually there's a risk that not enough people choose to be vaccinated for us to get to that critical mass? It's a really, really important point. And there's been some quite mixed numbers over the past nine months generally, and then even more recently, with a report out today saying around 80% of adults are keen to take the vaccine, but then reports of that being much lower elsewhere. And just like with the virus itself, the vaccine has the same approach whereby by taking the vaccine, you're not just reducing your risk, but you're reducing the risk of those around you, the community, and actually in many ways playing your part for us all to get back to normal as soon as possible. But there are those who are unsure about the vaccine and the broadly two groups, I think that you could split them up to. Clearly there's lots of differences within those groups, but there are those who are the anti-vaxxers who are quite a peculiar group, are very difficult to engage with and have been around for a long time. And in my old work, when I was doing health protection, we'd regularly come across individuals when we're talking about the MMR and so forth like that. And for those, it's very difficult. And public health have been working hard on this for many years and will continue to ensure that they do their best to try and improve vaccine uptake in those groups. But then there's a second group where it might be for religious or cultural reasons that they are unsure. And I think we're seeing reports of that being not insignificant across the NHS workforce and so forth. And this is where I think it's on you know, the NHS and on employers to actually explore what those reasons are and to explore those with people so they do feel happy to take the vaccine, have the vaccine and protect themselves and their families and play their part. Just as we're getting towards, well, coming into the weeks, getting towards the first review of the lockdown, as you said, no dates committed to yet. You made the point already that this is lockdowns are about politics, not just science. And so you've got these two things in the mix there. How do you see the balance of those two things, particularly the politics element? Has that changed, do you think? Has that evolved this time around? I think it's really interesting that we've gone into this third national lockdown. And had the tier system perhaps been more effective or used more effectively, we may not have done. Now, the new strains with the higher infectivity have been largely blamed for it but I think it's fair to say as well and some of the analysis we've done in LCP using the COVID tracker has shown actually that the tier that you were in was much more predictive of your growth rates than the strain itself. Clearly the reason that we you know I think it's quite an odd situation where children were sent back to school for one day before then being pulled out both on a with regards to spread of COVID but also from a preparations point of view in education. I think that shows how it clearly was not a decision made until relatively last minute in January. I think those hospitalisation numbers, you know, we've been more than 50% higher than we were at the worst point in that first wave and the same for ICU levels. You know, they're truly scary numbers. And we really weren't far off at all, I think, the issue when you start to see excess deaths for non-COVID reasons. I think in, in coming weeks, I think there's definitely a sense from everything you read in here that given how well the vaccine rollout is going, the government would want to make sure this absolutely is the last time we're in lockdown. And so to do that, you have to make sure that when we come out of it, we have all of the tools available to ensure that we can control the virus as we gradually come down the tiers, getting back to more normal life without too many steps backwards. And I think that's quite a powerful noise to be making, especially when you can truly say this should be the last time, and which I'm sure will buy them capital. 
But it's going to be very difficult. And already we can see many MPs very understandably raising the challenges of when will schools be back because this is so damaging to children and families across the country. One point that has been sort of in the back of my mind, and I think it has been reported a bit in the news, but I've not seen any sort of firm conclusions. So the UK is ahead of the world in terms of vaccine rollout, which is great for us sitting here in the UK. And the US is now in a very rapid rollout sort of phase as well. And various sort of richer countries, I suppose, are at fairly advanced stages in the rollout preparation or or rollout itself. But what does this mean for emerging markets where they don't have the same access, they don't have the same refrigerating facilities, they don't have the same money that they can sort of throw at this situation? You're hitting the nail on the head there, Mary, is that in many ways, even though the end game is inside, that actually we're probably at the most uncertain time of the pandemic of all, because whilst we here in the UK can see the path, and if not know the exact date, but the path towards closer to normal, even if it won't be totally normal for some while, it's much, much more variable and uncertain around the world. And various estimates are suggesting, you know, as long as 18 months, two years, even three years before various low and middle income countries have sort of sufficient access to the vaccines. And as you say, because certain vaccines, because of their supply chains and so forth, and the refrigerating requirements are much better suited to certain infrastructures than others. I think there's really interesting implications, though, both for the UK and for all countries as we go forward, because even if the UK continue this rollout at quite impressive speed, they are, at the moment, the noises from the government are actually to have the most harsh restrictions on the borders that we've had at any time in this pandemic, just as we're coming, hopefully, towards the end of the worst of it. And part of that is because of other strains that seem to have higher infectivity, maybe higher mortality rates as well. But what happens, can you see in, say, in May, June, July, when actually, hopefully, we're in relatively well-controlled COVID circulation here. We've got good rollout of the vaccine and we're looking to go back to tier one type of restrictions hypothetically at that time. But let's say over the border in France, they've got less than a quarter of the population that we have who've been vaccinated. There are new strains going around. It's very, very uncertain then. Will we continue to have these quite strict border controls for quite some time? If so, how long? Because you could be at least a couple of years until many of the low middle income countries have the vaccination rolled out. And then the second side is, of course, my view has been for a long time that COVID is here for the rest of our lives. And it's very likely that it becomes an annual vaccine in the way that uh, for flu, for those in vulnerable groups and so forth. And the final unknown on that is which of these mutations and different strains will be covered by the current vaccines and or certain vaccines like the mRNA ones are able to change quite quickly as a shortened four to six weeks is what they say, that those could be adapted for new strains. But that's not true for all vaccines. And those vaccines that do require the minus 70s are actually better suited sometimes for those changes. So that could throw in another complexity to it all as well. Yeah, that kind of speaks to, I guess, the question we're going to come on to in terms of the shape of the recovery in terms of best case, worst case type scenarios. Clearly, it was impossible to put a date on the end of the lockdown. But in the bigger picture, we want to try and understand when we can get back to normal. And I guess normal means meeting up with in groups, traveling, all that sort of good stuff. And I suppose it's becoming increasingly obvious, especially from what you're saying, that that really is potentially quite far off and that there is still, and there is going to be a lot of different shades of normal on the way back to that. We were just saying, weren't we, before I start, we started recording that the Times on Saturday put out best case, worst case type guesses. And they were sort of saying best case lockdown easing by sometime approaching May. And that was their best case, which might have surprised a few people. But where are you sort of seeing that best case, worst case type timing for the end of the lockdown and then progressively moving towards something more like normal life as we knew it before? 
I think as with all of these things, it's impossible to predict certainly anything more than a couple of days in advance. But that generally what we'd want to see is that infection numbers continue to decline, that hospitalizations start to decline now over coming weeks, and that the vaccine rollout continues to improve. I think there's reason that at the back end of March and early April around that Easter time, if these things continue, there's reason to be optimistic that we might be looking at moving into a more regional-based tier system. Now, whether that's tier four everywhere, which isn't far off where we are at the moment, or more slightly more relaxed measures than that's unclear. But that what we should be happy to see, though, is that we should be gradually moving down the tiers in confidence that we shouldn't have to take many steps backwards because the vaccine rollout and so forth will be going on. I think from there, really, again, depending upon the vaccine rollout going to time as planned, as long as with the case numbers continue to decline, you would like to think we'd be coming into these types of tier two restrictions, things like pubs being open, and then having tier one where rule of six and so forth in the summer at some point. Now, when that is, isn't unclear again, but we'd like to think that this summer would be more normal than last summer was, and then for things to improve from there. The final thing is that when we come back into the autumn and winter, again, clearly depending on the aim, the government's aim is to get all adults vaccinated by the autumn, which would be both impressive, but also very timely as we come into that worst part again of the year for the NHS. The question then will be, have we decided that is there another vaccine required, a booster required for the vulnerable and so forth? All of these questions that we just don't know yet because the vaccine's new, we don't know how long the immunity lasts, when boosters are required and so forth. But it's totally, it's not unforeseeable in my view that there are some sort of restrictions in place next winter, hopefully way, way, way below the types of restrictions we've seen this winter, but there's some sort of measures in there even then. Yeah, and I think spelling out one point you made there, and I think you've got a piece out, we'll link to it, on this exact point, you think we're going to be back in tiers and some tiered system fairly soon. I think your piece had the catchy title, Will It All End in Tears, which was nice and optimistic, but the answer seems to be yes, as far as you're concerned. Yes, I can't claim uh, credit for that. That was Tim Canfield's commentary piece and title, which was very good. But I think it's very likely to. So I think everything throughout the unlocking of this, and as we go forward, will be very stepwise. Hopefully it will be data-driven and it will be gradual. And so I think it will be a regional approach, perhaps even more local than regional approach, but proportionate to what's happening on the ground there. Johnny, you mentioned earlier, very briefly, the COVID tracker, which we'll obviously link to in the show notes. But I just wondered whether there were any other interesting insights that you've gained from the data that that shows. It's been really interesting. So what we try to do with the COVID tracker is there are two types of data sources, which we discussed in the last podcast. But Briefly, there are the daily numbers we all get on the news, which are that those who've tested positive for a case for COVID and requested a test. And then there's the ONS data, which is a random surveillance, random set of people across the country. And we try to be as comprehensive as the ONS estimates, but as up to date as the PHE ones. And so we had some really interesting analysis as to how when we came out of that November lockdown, as I say, those areas in tier two, even those areas in tier two who did not have large portions of this new Kemp strain, had much, much higher growth rates than those areas in tier three. And if you look at places in the Northwest, for example, who are in higher restrictions all through October before that lockdown, it just speaks to that you need these sustained and effective measures to really get control of the virus. We're extending the tracker at the moment to include other metrics as well, such as index multiple deprivation of the local tier, lower tier local authorities, as well as death data as well. So we're hoping to update it with some new analyses around that over the next week or two. Fantastic. We'll look out for that. Johnny, changing tack slightly, I mean, obviously, this is by nature a pretty downbeat conversation in, in sort of many ways. And 
as you say, it's been a pretty terrible time in all our lives, last sort of year or so. But actually, a lot of your work has much more positive sort of takeaway for overall health. So perhaps you could um, sort of brighten things a little bit by talking a little bit about your more positive take on health coming out of this. Yes, thanks, Dan. So one of the things that the negative aspects clearly that the pandemic has highlighted is how linked the illness of a population is with poor economic outcomes and how it impacts our social and day-to-day lives, as the pandemic has shown so harshly. And similarly, we've exposed many of the inequalities in health, but quite strikingly, the pandemic has shown all other inequalities. So some of the quite shocking statistics, not only are those in the lowest 10% of earners more likely to catch the virus, the type of jobs and so forth they do, more likely to die from the virus. But if you're in the bottom 10% of earners, you are seven times more likely to be out of work for your job to have made you redundant in that first lockdown than in the top 10%. Similarly, those types of social gradients around learning for children at home, whether they had the digital infrastructure and so forth, and or parents or others with the time able to support that learning during the first lockdown. And so we've heard all of these awful stories over the past nine, 10 months and all the data to back that up. But what Sally Davis and I in our book sort of do is turn all of that on our head and look, even before the pandemic, there was growing evidence that the reverse is true too. So no longer actually is education the biggest predictor of your future employment opportunities and prosperity, but health is. Being healthy during school, being healthy during life, actually is a bigger predictor of being able to get a job and to continue and to do well in that job. And so if you flip all of this on your head, actually, you can say we're coming out of this pandemic across the country. We all clapped for the NHS and rightly so. But that actually, we're very appreciative of that illness service that keeps us alive. But if we value health for what it can provide, it can provide that opportunity clearly to be healthy, allows you to learn, to be in a job and to do well in your job, but also to be happy. Then actually repositioning health as a platform for future prosperity and happiness. If we can come out of the pandemic with that approach, then at least we've learned something over the last 12 months. Yeah. And one thing I think you called for in the book and that's been actioned quite quickly is a health index, which can actually put a number on our nation's stock of health and a particular region's stock of health. And that, I think, has already been out there, doesn't it? And we've got um, a tracker to show that. And that opens up some fascinating possibilities, I guess, because you can start to see that as an alternative to GDP, for example. So what if we measured the recovery from this in terms of our health stock? Is that where you're going with that? Exactly that. And if you think, so at the top level, if you think what you know, politicians will stand and talk about in the six weeks before the next election. They'll tell you that the economy has grown. They'll tell you unemployment's the lowest it's been. And they'll give you some other economic statistics. They'll probably tell you they've put a few more million into A&Es in the NHS too. But by the health index becoming a national statistic, which is the aim next summer when the full version is published, then what we can aspire to is that a government wants to stand there and say, and we've improved the health index, the stock of health in this country, or conversely, for the opposition to point out how they haven't invested in the future. Now, one of the biggest challenges with public health, particularly, and why sort of investments have been incentivized so much around really papering over the cracks within the NHS, things like A&E and so forth, is because you can see those rewards pretty quickly. If you give more money to the front line, clearly you will see those rewards within weeks, months, or even days sometimes. Whereas investing in, for example, obesity, investing in healthy diets, that will take many years for the fullness of those rewards to come, whereby Creating this composite health index, which gives equal weighting to health outcomes, to risk factors and to those social drivers, then that incentivizes governments because if they invest in obesity prevention or invest in smoking cessation, then that will pay off quickly within the index. 
and legitimize their investment to say this is where it's already delivered a return to the nation and will do so more in years to come. The other thing that strikes me over the last year is people's willingness to talk about mental health as well, because it's had, a, I think, probably because it's had an effect on all of our mental health in different ways. Actually, there's been a, so much, from my perspective, so much more pers- sort of, um, acceptance that that is an issue, which, you know, whether it's a medical condition, whether it's sort of mental well-being rather than a mental illness, having that as a factor in the health index is also really, really important because that clearly has an impact on future prosperity. Yeah, absolutely, Mary. One of the really interesting things, so on the Health Index Explorer, you can click on the index or a given region and then see how it's broken down at each level. And at the healthy people level, which is the outcomes, the first set of domains within there are mortality, well-being, mental health and physical health, morbidity, both of those two. And what's striking is mortality has been fairly flat over the last five years, but both physical health and mental health uh, morbidity have declined a lot and even more so in mental health morbidity. And then when you look how that varies across the country, the disparities in that are just huge. And then when we go one step further and say, well, this is a health index for the country, but actually health is an asset for employers and local communities too. We know that, so for example, mental ill health conditions has been the fastest growing condition as a reason for health-related benefits over the last 10 years. It's also the fastest growing condition for absenteeism within work. And so one of the areas that we're at LCP looking to do as well is we can create a similar approach to the health index for companies, for workforces, for local communities that both not just identifies their stock of health, but then shows them what are the conditions actually that are contributing to the ill health of their workforce and where should they invest most in the health and well-being of their workforce, physical and mental health, both clearly for the health of their workforce and their well-being. But actually, that will pay off in terms of productivity. but frankly through many other ways as well. And it focuses the mind, doesn't it? Because we spend a lot of time trying to help companies deliver the pensions that they owe to people and deliver people sort of money in retirement. But as I think the health index shows in some parts of the country, sadly, retirees can expect to live most of their retirement in quite poor health in some cases. So a focus not just on the wealth that we're able to deliver to retirees, but also they're trying to improve their health outcomes at the same time. Definitely. And it's that gap. Quite interestingly, if you look at, again, most and least deprived deciles in England, You've got an eight-year gap in women for life expectancy, but a 19-year gap in healthy life expectancy. And that's where, as you say, Dan, that really the bottom 30% of women that can't even expect to get to retirement age in good health. Now, if over the next 20 years, life expectancy didn't improve at all, but that that morbidity gap was halved, I think we as individuals would lead healthier and happier lives. But actually, that would pay off clearly for the economy because of the productivity of that, both at a company level, but also feeding much wider up to government as well. Johnny, that's been such an interesting conversation. We're starting to run out of time now. But what one thing do you want the listeners to take away from this discussion? Hopefully we're over the worst of this in coming months, but COVID will be here for many years to come still. And Johnny, what thing do you think is going most underappreciated at the moment? I generally think in much lighter news that the difficulty is at the moment, every time you turn on your radio or turn on the TV, we are surrounded by truly awful news. And it's right that's being reported. But I think Similarly, sometimes because we all work virtually, lots of those jokes or anecdotes aren't shared as much. So I think making sure we all find time to have a little laugh each day during the workday is important. And on that, I'd share my favourite news story from today, which was that the police mistook a group of pensioners who were waiting for their vaccine in Essex to actually be an illegal raid. (laughs) And we're about to uh, arrest all of them. And so I think that made me smile today. And I look each day for a story that makes me chuckle. 
Fantastic. What a lovely note to end on. <laughs> and let's hope all those pensioners did get their vaccines. Johnny, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mary. And thank you, Dan. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. Bye. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.